Hey everyone, when we recorded this episode, we neglected to let you all know that there is a brief discussion of racial violence, so please proceed with that in mind. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Baggy, and on this episode, we are doing the 62nd Best Picture winner, Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy is a 1989 American comedy drama directed by Bruce Beresford, starring Jessica Tandy, Morgan Freeman, and Dan Aykroyd. It was written by Alfred Urey and based on his 1987 play of the same name. You know, I did notice that it was adapted from a stage play. And can I just say, great adaptation. Like, I loved all of the choices that they made. And it never felt like it suffered from that being the source, like some films in the past. Agreed. They took advantage of the things you can do with film that you can't do on stage. Absolutely agree. Road trip montages. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Plenty of uh, Atlanta landmarks that we will talk all about. Don't you worry. Oh, It was aggressively set in Atlanta. And you know those films that are just like, let me drop some names. (laughs) I loved it, though. And it made me a little bit homesick for ATL. But the story centers around the relationship between the curmudgeonly Daisy Worthen and her driver, Hoke Colburn, over a 25-year period. And that is a very, like, simplistic boiling down of the story, but... Yeah, curmudgeonly, I don't think... it. Maybe it's not quite as editorialized as much as I would (laughs) think it needs to be, but hey, I'm here with it. (laughs) Uh, We will get into just how curmudgeonly she is. The movie at the time was pretty well received, but it definitely has faced criticism, uh, especially more recently around the film's handling of racism and particularly Hoke's character, who is definitely underwritten. Uh, That's who Freeman plays. I completely would agree with that. And I do want to point out, too, like some of that criticism did occur like at the time the film was released. So it's. I mean, I guess we are approaching like the 90s, so we're we're rapidly coming up on kind of a more uh, modern sensibility on how we, we treat these sorts of topics. So yeah, I, I felt some of that. Yeah, and, and there definitely was criticism at the time. I think it has kind of shifted from leaning more towards well-reviewed to lean to like being more widely criticized. But like you said, there was definitely also criticism at the time, particularly because Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing came out the same year and was not even nominated. And I often hear that film brought up when people are talking about Driving Miss Daisy. It does have a couple interesting like Oscar history factoids attached to it, though. It is the only film based on an off-Broadway production to win Best Picture. There were others that like maybe started off-Broadway but then moved to Broadway. Oh, so it was like they were capitalizing on the brand of, say, My Fair Lady. Why do we bring that one up so much? I hate well, it. because it was brought up in the film and just wait. So anyway, keep going. <gasps> it was. You're right. <laughs> <sighs> I have scream notes in my my notebook, so it's fine. I blocked that out. Uh, Jessica Tandy at age 80 became the oldest winner of the best actress category in Oscar history. I believe she still holds the title. And she was good. She was 80. She was 80, and she's really good. I went, Most of the like critical praise for the film that I saw was centered around her and Freeman's acting and their performances. And most of the criticism I saw was about the writing uh, yeah, and the directing. It was also the first Best Picture since Grand Hotel in 1932 to not receive a Best Picture 
direct or not to receive a best director nomination. Sorry. Oftentimes those go hand in hand. Yeah. And I was going to say like how, so are they saying that the movie would have happened without the director, which like normally I'm not here to inflate the egos of powerful people who like, anyway, it it just like, what? (laughs) Apparently uh, Oscar host Billy Crystal that year made a similar joke about the film, apparently having directed itself. Oh, when he, yep. I, I mean, I think given some of the criticism, like I kind of see it, like if people are putting all of their praise on Tandy and Freeman's performances, like maybe. Well, and I don't mean this to sound like I'm trying to discount their performances, but aren't they getting some feedback and some direction? (laughs) So it, I don't know. It, It just feels odd to me. I mean, I don't know. I have not really thought about how I stand on this, but I feel like you can be okay saying like, I think this film should win best picture, but I don't think it's because of the directing. I think it's because of all these other elements. Yeah. We're like rapidly delving into like the theory of the strong versus weak director, like a la or the the, executive (laughs) idea of the auteur director, which is something that I have a lot of issue. Uh, Yeah. This is not that episode. We won't worry about that right now. Sorry, keep going. Um, I'll I'll save these thoughts for later. <laughs> as of last year, it was also the most recent PG-rated Best Picture winner. Everything since then has been PG-13 or R. I just made me look like a GD fool. That line sticks with me. So I'm like, yeah, I, I there was no it's swearing. so Southern, though, to like... <laughs> Did not just say goddamn. Yes. <laughs> Especially from like, you know, this runs like 40s through 60s. Other awards and nominations. So Freeman was nominated for Best Actor, but didn't win. As I mentioned, Tandy won for Best Actress. Dan Aykroyd was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. His accent got on my last nerve. It was very bad. <laughs> very bad. Okay, again, they were going for an aggressive, like, localizing of everything in this film so but like tandy's is good and i believe tandy's a british actress like hers is good freeman's is obviously good he's from tennessee i think Ackroyd's, i was like someone has never heard an authentic southern accent <laughs> it won for best adapted screenplay yuri won for that it was nominated for best art direction totally see that nominated for best costume design again totally see it uh, nominated for Best Film Editing, and one for Best Makeup. Although I, some of the aging makeup, I was kind of like, they did Patty Lapone kind of dirty. Well, fuck Florine, so it's fine. I don't even I care. Know. <laughs> Early on, I had a note where I was like, oh, poor Florine, because Daisy's so mean to her. And then like cut to like two scenes later, I was like, nah, fuck this lady. <laughs> Florine sucks. Oh, yeah. And honestly, her parents did her dirty by naming her Florine. Like... Sorry to all of our listeners named Florine. Florine. All I can think of is Florine gas. <laughs> like chlorine, but Florine. <laughs> I Yes, I'm aware of the element. <laughs> so anyway. Other nominations from that year were Born on the Fourth of July, which I believe was one of Oliver Stone's, like kind of that Vietnam trilogy that I think we mentioned in Platoon. Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. So actually a pretty strong year nominee wise. So yeah, watch notes. Watch notes. I have a lot of watch notes. 
It's there's a lot in this movie, especially I don't know because they are attempting to deal with the complicated like intersection and contrasting slash like comparing of two different groups of people who have in their own ways experienced oppression, mm-hmm. which is like kind of the setup of Daisy's character as being a person who's come from like very poor origins. She's also Jewish in the South mm-hmm. in the 1940s. So that's a very small group of people who would have like experiences similar to her and who would of course be experiencing prejudice. And then of course, Hoke is black. Mm-hmm. I I feel like the film, it's like, yes, it deals with that, but also it doesn't deal with that. I think, I think they're going for subtlety though. I, there are a couple points when I'm like, man, I wish you were a little more subtle. And then there are other points where I'm like, man, I wish you'd like driven this home a little bit more. It was a, an, a weird balance or imbalance. Yeah. And honestly, the, I realize I'm jumping ahead, but this like really embodies my issue with the character of Daisy is her continued lack of self-awareness. So like the, the con the idea that her appearance is of a salt of the earth woman who is like very grounded and refuses to acknowledge the fact that she is rich. Like just that little bit really frustrated me with her character. And I don't think for me, she ever really escaped that initial, I guess, really stubborn and unself-aware person. I want to I want to touch on specific points where it happens, but there are multiple points in the film that I thought were going to be like the defining moment and change. And they'd happen. And then like a scene or two later, she's back to her old bullshit. Is she really changing? And I don't know, like maybe that's on purpose. Maybe you could argue that's more realistic that like, people will change and then they'll backslide and then it's a continual process and everything. But as far as like a narrative, like storytelling tactic, that was really unsatisfying. Oh, definitely. But like it in the movie itself, I, I will say that the first couple scenes of kind of establishing Daisy as a character, I find to be extremely well con- constructed. And like that film editing nomination really shines we kind of get to the inciting incident really fast because it's not a long movie. It's a little over an hour and a half, I believe, right? Um, so it's not long. So they're like kind of getting into the setup of the conflict very quickly with that opening of her driving her old car like off the driveway over a wall into the neighbor's yard. Yeah, and that j- just the way, again, testament to Jessica Tandy's acting there like her composure (laughs) outwardly but like you can kind of see behind her eyes she's like oh shit (laughs) what did i just do is just a perfect note to hit for this character who is like a very quote-unquote proper member of atlanta society and cares like control yeah and appearances like if if she's not controlling her appearance she is having a fit that is something that we're going to come back to repeatedly and that i really wish they'd explored more because i thought it was such an interesting facet to her character yeah the posture well i I shouldn't call it posturing but like the preoccupation with ensuring 
with the image. Yeah. Because it's something that she so criticizes her daughter-in-law, Florine, for. But yeah. then does the same thing herself. Miss Daisy is very hypocritical. And also so shady. I was here for yes. the shade, but also I like... I <laughs> not here for the hypocrisy, though. Exactly. We do, early on, get a beautiful one-liner. There are a lot of great one-liners in this, coming from Daisy, coming from Hoke, and then also coming from Bully, her son. Which... Is this about behaving? Because please tell me it is. Cars don't behave. They are behaved upon. Oh, it's seriously the banter. So we mentioned that the writing really did suffer. And I think it really did for Hoke's character and Morgan Freeman. But the banter between like Bully and Daisy was top notch. And that's just one of many examples. Like socializing with the Episcopalians. Like that is her issue with Florine is she's socializing with the Episcopalians. Well, I think I think that's just one of her many issues with Florine. Well, <laughs> but when we say, I think when we say that the writing struggles, I think we're talking about like character development and like the way the story moves along. As far as like the actual stringing together of words for dialogue, very snappy. Oh, for sure. I did the the movie did make me laugh out loud many times because it's Same. it's. I think part of it is the fact that. Like, I live in Atlanta, and so I'm a little bit, and I've lived here for a while, and also prior to that, spent some time in middle Georgia, which is a whole other beast. So, like, I've seen some real-life people kind of, like, talk this way and have the same similar, uh, shall we call them euphemisms, to, like, criticize other people. So, like, I don't want to reduce Southerners, especially not... Uh, Daisy to like a stereotype, but she definitely does fit characteristics that are stereotypical. Yeah, I, I do think the characters in general, um, particularly Hoke, which again, super underwritten, they lean on some stereotypes for sure. But at the same time, I'm with you. Like anything, anything set in Atlanta, I'm already kind of like oh, Atlanta. And then when they're like <laughs> making all the references to like like Decatur, like that's a part of town you and I are both very familiar with. We've probably driven by that house. Yeah, and then my fam my mom's side of the family is from like South Alabama. So when they do the road trip down to Mobile, like they talk about like taking a wrong turn at Opelika. Like we would drive by Opelika on our way to my grandparents' farm. Like the setting in the road trip, I was like, this looks like the roads I know. Like it was yeah, it was a little little trip down memory lane by proxy in some ways. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But you mentioned some of those stereotypes and things, and I think we do get to see that very quickly with the scene with the stuck elevator uh, in the textile mill. And this is where we get our character introduction to Hoke. And so while I appreciate that they- My family also uh, worked in and ran textile textile mills. Wow, so Southern. Back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Honestly, throughout the whole thing, when I'm seeing Bully's success- I'm like, oh, dude, you better buckle up because shit's going to hit the fan soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's why I said uh, back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. But that scene with the elevator, I I got the impression that they were trying to position Hoke as being intelligent and able to solve problems and like all this like really positive aspects to people. 
But the thing that I really couldn't get over is their insistence on using a very stereotypical, like poor, uneducated black accent for all of the African-American characters in it. And I just, and, that took and me syntax. out. Like there, yeah. there are some like syntax stereotypes. Yeah. When I, I think I agree with what I think they're trying to do in that scene is, is show hoax intelligence despite not having an education. It's established later that he really can't read. I think that's supposed to sort of show that like super over the top upbeatness that he puts on for like Daisy and Bully really is more of an act in like an I'm performing the role that you as like a rich white person with some economic and political and social capital in this city at this time expect me to behave. But like you, they could have done more and they could have done it in, I think, a less cringy way and still kind of like established more levels and made that more apparent. Mm-hmm. And the the excuse that I've heard before is that, oh, we wanted to make it like a period accurate. And I'm like, just get the fuck out. You don't have to like lean in to the bullshit of the past. Also, I feel like when a lot of people say like we wanted to make it more period accurate, I feel like they're referencing media from that time, which like we've covered stuff from the 30s and 40s. Like it's a whole other level. Yeah. Shall we uh, refer to Cimarron or Cimarron? Oh, God. yeah. Uh but it's but like even but like that wasn't correct at the time. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't correct nor was it right in many senses of the word, but like so I yeah, I just also like you said it's kind of done to like all of the black characters and like obviously that's a problem. Yeah. It's just it's it's a reduction. I, I do feel like, and I think this is probably where the best actor nomination comes in for Morgan Freeman. I think the any sort of levels there are to Hoke or any sort of like um, nuance there is to Hoke, I think it's Freeman's charisma coming through. I don't think it's the, the character as written necessarily. I'd agree with that because it's very, I mean, to, to move to the next like set of scenes where Bully is trying to introduce Hoke to his he mama. Hi- he hires Hoke to be Daisy's driver. Which Daisy and needs a driver. <laughs> she does. She's very adamant that she's not. And she will take the trolley to the Piggly Wiggly. Ian, thank you very much. Aggressively Which set in the, the Piggly South. Wiggly, the Piggly Wiggly babies. Okay, somebody told me, though, that they they like had Piggly Wigglies up in like Michigan like 30 yeah, years ago. It was actually today. founded, I believe, in the Midwest. It was the first like big supermarket chain. So Interesting. I always always associate it with like small town south well it's it's a perfect example of not adapting with your customer base and not like you know investing in technology so they like failed except they're in the still south. around though they're still around <laughs> though in a lot of like more rural places like the piggly wiggly that's your grocery store yeah but i digress so <laughs> sorry this like <laughs> we just went on a grocery store nostalgia rant <laughs> we're gonna go on more it's it's fine we're we're on tangents today it's fun the next like set of scenes is really Hoke trying to win the favor of Daisy. And this is where I just, he's an employee of Daisy. He was hired. Well, not of Daisy of. Bully makes that very clear. Is yeah. that like, you're working for me. He was like, she can say whatever she wants to you, but like, I'm the one who's paying you. You work for me. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know. There was some, 
full transparency. This was the quote that was pulled in the Wikipedia article, but they like called hoax character toadying. And I'm like, 100% is, which I did have to look that up. And it means that you're like trying to be deferent and like catering to this other person. And there's like this, depending on like which rating, some self-serving reasons involved too. So I just, it, it just smacked of the stereotype of the subservient Southern slave that was like super happy to be in their position and was just like, it, it just, it, it was not good. I think the problem is too with the writing too, right? Because like, of course, Hoke is trying to ingratiate himself with Daisy. Like he's going to have to be driving her around. Like he doesn't want like a contentious relationship with her. And he's trying everything he possibly can to like reach out to her and she's having none of it. But like the level of the writing it's it's so like exaggerated and like there's no nuance to it like any sort of like more complex motive for hoke like the audience has to subscribe to it it's not there in the movie on its own like yeah and then it's and then it's just daisy just being an asshole about everything yeah and like even to the point that she's like don't talk to idella idella has work to do it i'm like okay can she not make your biscuits while talking? Because right. with that white lily flower in the background, I did enjoy the set dressing was a set plus. dressing so good. Uh, <laughs> Daisy's house is phenomenal. No, yeah, totally. Like, don't be an asshole. Like, I like Idella's gonna get her work done. Like, you don't have to make it also just like a hellish work environment for these two people. Also, like. Of course, Hoke is trying to like do other stuff. Like he's also tr- he's trying to ingratiate himself. Also, otherwise he'd just be sitting at the table doing nothing. And as I said, we find out later that like he can't really read. So sitting at the table with the paper is even less of a form of entertainment than you might initially have thought. So like, of course he's gonna want to like do stuff. Like just let him garden, Daisy. Like who cares? The part that like broke me. And made me so mad at her. And I'm going to be fully honest, I never really got over this because they never give her a super satisfying character arc is when she tells him that she doesn't want people poking through her things when he comments on a picture that's hanging on the fucking wall. You're displaying that shit. Was that just for you to just like have a picture on the wall or like, do you expect people to not have eyes? I don't. See, all the art I hang in my apartment is for my eyes only. And if visitors look at it, I'm pissed. Like, oh, you don't you don't like put on goggles for your visitors so they just don't know where they are, like all creepily and such. Sorry, I'm gonna edit that out. (laughs) Is that what you just asked me? Okay, but that is legitimately what Daisy is basically saying. She's just like, you cannot look upon my face. I am Medusa. I don't know. Like, come on. Stop poking through my things, aka it's the stuff absurd. I've hung in my front hall. It's so dumb. And throughout all of this, she's like calling Bully and like complaining. We do have a lovely, lovely shot where uh, she gets convinced to go on her first ride. I loved this sequence. And you know why I love it? It's because she does it for appearances. Yes. Which, and again, like they keep kind of hinting at this and coming back to it. We never 
fully get why. And I kind of wish we'd just been given like maybe like one anecdote from her childhood that like fully kind of explained why she cared so much about appearances and in particular why she was so bothered when people called her rich. There's, I feel like there's like some stuff you could kind of guess based on her character and some other dialogue, but I kind of just wanted like a more definitive anecdote. Yeah. My, I, I may be, pro- maybe projecting is not quite the right word, but my grand theory of that sort of it, I mean, it's similar to like what 90% of some like stupidly high percent of the United States population considers themselves like middle class. And on the high end, that's just like, absurd like no you're rich but it's like my theory is that it's a way like people cannot square an upbringing where they didn't have means with their current situation and it's kind of like an exclusive either or sort of thing and i kind of see that with daisy where she does to some extent talk about how like she grew up with nothing and back when they lived on forsyth street and she can't square the fact that her family was poor with the fact that they've been so fortunate that they can now have full-time help to drive her, to clean her house, to help cook, all of that. So it's like one of those situations where it's really like the lies that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Like that is what I'm I'm seeing there. And it's almost like her richness is a, an attack on her heritage and her childhood. But yeah, I, I just kind of wanted like what and I, I, I totally get that. And I think that that is kind of like what you get from Daisy's character. But I just I wanted like for story reasons, just kind of like maybe a solidifying anecdote of like why maintaining that identity was so important to her. Mm-hmm. She also I think at some phrase point uses the phrase like I don't put on airs. And I just wanted to know like, oh, was there something that like happened in her childhood that like really made her fear people having that perception of her. Yeah, I agree on the anecdote part. I I don't know. I there's a lot of this movie that even even at the end, I feel like a lot of my own personal experiences and baggage like I kind of laid on top of aspects of this story. So even though like I felt objectively like this quote friendship was extremely one-sided and oh for like, sure i have a note later that uh when daisy tells oh Hoke he's her best friend i'm like oh hoke may be daisy's best friend but daisy is not hoke's best friend no that plus the the representation piece all of that gave me like this squick but also like i was bawling my eyes out so I, it's, it's very complicated. sad for her you know what i mean like you you feel kind of sad for her at the end like when she does say like, you're my best friend. And obviously he doesn't say it back because, you know, it's not reciprocated, although he's extremely sweet to her about it. Like it kind of makes you sad for Daisy that like she has isolated herself so much through her judgment of others due to her own fears about others judgment of her, because uh, I will talk about this later, but like, it's, it's not just like, Hoke and Idella, who she fears, quote, talking about her behind her back. It's everybody, including her community at the temple, her own family. Like, she's so afraid of appearances and, like, letting people in that, like, it's so sad what it takes for her to let somebody in even a little bit and then 
it is such a one-sided relationship. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I kind of, there's a little bit of sadness for her at the end that like, this is like, you've boxed yourself into a very lonely corner. It is sad in a way. Yeah, I agree with that. The car scene, though, where they're arguing over, like, how to drive and the fuel, like, burn and all that fun stuff. I'm just like, this <sighs> is quintessential comedy. It's so funny. You, she <laughs> hates change. This woman hates change. She's like, you have to go to the Piggly Wiggly this way. Like, you have to turn here. And he's like, that's not the best way to get there. She's like, I've been going to the Piggly Wiggly for 30 years since it opened, and I always go that way. That's the way. And it's like it is a legitimately way. upsetting her. Yes. As a far way. as is concerned, her way is the only way. I just, it's, bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you would enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> I did, I did. I needed to laugh today. Thank you. But I will say, when they get to the Piggly Wiggly, the Piggly Wiggly is now Ragarama in little five points. Like legitimately, I pulled it up on Google Street View because I was like, I recognize I this. It so familiar. It is. It, the facade is the same except for the sign. And you can see across the street, the old school that's gotten turned into like apartments, it's apartments or lofts. now. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was like, I looked at apartments shit, there. I know where that is. <laughs> I've looked at apartments there before. Uh, <laughs> I know exactly where that is. I feel like, yeah, a lot of this, sorry, everyone who's like not from Atlanta or never been from Atlanta, a lot of this podcast episode is going to be Ian and I just like fangirling over locations in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. This Love is this is five. the most like fangirling that I'm going to do because the rest I couldn't really place. But I do the phone call scene with Morgan Freeman Honestly, like, again, the, the, the shots here, I wouldn't call them arresting, but it was well shot. Like, and the cuts sure. between being able to see her in the Piggly Wiggly to, like, him in the phone booth, because uh, he's calling Bully to be like, I did it. <laughs> like, I got her to let me give her a ride. Um, and I I do kind of like the the interplay between Bully and... Uh, Hoke, where they're kind of like in on this together and kind of both of them just like finding the humor and like, yeah, we finally did it. And even Hoke, like he can see her, see him in the phone booth and he's like, oh, she's going to be mad. She's going to, oh, how does he phrase it? She's going to pitch a fit or throw a fit. Yeah, it's not quite pitch a fit, but it's, it's basically that phrase. And I love that he just like, he's, he's kind of nonchalant about like, he finds it funny that she's going to do that. Not like, he's not like worried about it, which I think is funny. And I think, and Bully also finds it funny as well. Oh, absolutely. And the, the one thing about this sort of like, oh, it's funny. I'm going to do it anyway. That it again, and this happens through the entire film. It's Hoke humoring Daisy. Except for one, like, there's, like, one moment where he doesn't. And that's what I thought was going to be our turning point. It was not. They undid it. They did. So, Ugh. anyway. the I know. Because it makes, honestly, if they had, like, kept with that change and not, like, reverted back to the old dynamic and kind of, like, kept a more consistent change in their dynamic, Having the moment where he finally tells her no at one point would have been a lot more satisfying because it's like we've watched him just humor her and 
because he has to, to a certain extent, and just kind of like take her assholery. It would have made it made it like very, very satisfying. I mean, it is satisfying when he tells her no, and then it becomes unsatisfying because they don't carry the that character dynamic and that like change throughout. But yeah, it's the gist of it is I'm a human, accept me as such, and then she proceeds to not. And then there are multiple other moments where you're like, maybe now she's going to accept him, and she proceeds to not. So anyway... Li- oh, I do have a note. Sorry. I have one note about the drive to the Piggly Wiggly that I just had to throw out here. Um, sorry, it's a joke for all you Atlanteans. Ooh. Where she gets mad at him for speeding. And I w- have a note that I'm like, wait, you can't speed in Atlanta. The speed limits there are only- merely suggestions. <laughs> Everyone knows an ATL speed limit is merely a suggestion. The thing is, if it's you were... It's a speed minimum. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're not going the speed equal or greater than... To the number of the highway you're on, you are too slow. Just for reference, for people who don't know, eighty-five uh, and seventy-five. Yeah, interstate straight through the city, and two eighty-five if you're feeling ambitious. <laughs> Sorry, horrible joke. Uh, but next set of scenes, we get to see her again. Treat him as with suspicion as like not an upstanding person. Like she is literally going through and checking all of her things. Now I will say, I want to talk about the score for a second here. We have another Hans Zimmer score. Yeah. We have another Hans Zimmer score. This is two in a row. I liked this one much better than rain man. It is a perfect example of an eighties score that you can tell us from the eighties, but ages well. Mm-hmm. It's not overly synthy. But yeah, so we get kind of this like really cool bit of like the music working with the cinematography and the editing when, um, as Ian said, she's been like counting stuff in her pantry and is like, Hoke stole one of my cans of salmon and like calls Booley in the middle of the night or early in the morning. I don't know which one, like freaking out about it. He's fucking over it at this point. But the thing, though, the way that they build up this, like, suspense, like something really horrific has happened with the soundtrack, as you mentioned. we know it's not something horrific. Like, we know it's going to be stupid because we know Daisy. Well, yeah, it's like the film being like, you dumb, dumb, dumb person. Motherfucker. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> The the movie itself was PG, so I'm now overly compensating on the swearing in order to uh, even out the ratings. But uh, <laughs> I I do love the buildup and then the reveal and the close up on the san the can of salmon with like the music sting and it's like the most over the top musical sting and it's so appropriate. Um, and Tandy's performance in this section is great. Like she is so serious about this and incredibly upset. She has got the receipts. She's insisting to Bully that he has to fire Hoke. Bully's like, it's a can of salmon. It was three for one dollar on sale. Like he, at one point, he's like, "Do you want? Do you want thirty three cents, Mom? Do you do you want fifty dollars? Like what?" <laughs> it's and again, this is that she has repeatedly said, "I am not prejudiced." Yeah. Which I thought was a little heavy-handed. It, but. Yes. Yeah. But it is it is an interesting commentary on like the ways we see ourselves and again, the lies that we tell ourselves. So it's like the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, okay, I see what I'm interpreting. 
I see as like having a goal of making some commentary there. But as you've repeatedly said, and I don't want to go too far into it, she like doesn't have a satisfying like progression. So, yeah. Which again, I guess you could argue is in itself commentary, but not narratively satisfying. No. So I do appreciate with Hoke, they had him before he is fired, own up to it. Now, when I say appreciated, I mean like the thought I appreciated, the actuality of it. I was like, wow, more really heavy. Like, it is so satisfying though to like, watch Daisy have to eat her words. Okay, that is true. And she's like, oh, I gotta go get ready. And yeah. <laughs> she don't expect oh. <laughs> Hoke comes in and I do like there is the little bit where he's like walking and uh he has like a friend with him. Hoke comments on Bully's car being there so early and his friend is like, oh that's probably not good for you. But yeah, Hoke walking in and then Bully's like, we need to talk. You have Hoke's kind of like forced optimism of like, yeah, that's of course, that's totally fine. I'm just gonna take off my jacket. But then he turns around. He's like, oh, by the way, like, I did eat one of your cans of salmon yesterday. I know you had put out the leftover pork chops for me, but like they were kind of dry and I was hungry. So like I brought you back a can to replace today. And just watching Daisy just stand there and have to just like she never says I'm wrong, but she knows it. And while I would love for her to have to say it, it's also very satisfying to just watch someone who was so adamant they were right about something they were so wrong about uh, have to make that realization. Yeah. Well, and honestly, the fact that Bully called her bluff in the first place was also satisfying because like it's one of those dog caught the car situations where it was very clear that what she wanted, she didn't act well, what she what her actions were saying she wanted is not what she actually wanted. So I that's satisfying. So gravesite scene, I think that we we have like a transition that shows that time has passed, which I was a little split on this. There were things about the grave scene that I liked. Uh, there were things that I really didn't like. Also, like I don't know, like it felt it felt like we were making a big leap in their relationship because she suddenly has a very different demeanor towards him. Although I understand that you could then say like the whole salmon can situation like kind of opened her eyes or something but it felt like a really significant leap forward that we didn't get to see the full progress of but then of course they roll it back later like i was the pacing on the relationship development was sketch yeah it kind of went back and forth which like you said might be deliberate or it might be sloppy can't really tell right and if it was deliberate again that's fine but unsatisfying I loved the line about how Bully will have me in perpetual care before I'm cold like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, again, the, like, individual phrases are great and so entertaining. She for sure has some zingers. Her just anger at the fact he can't read. Yeah. She's so indignant about it. But it's, like, it's 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 not that she's mad at him, necessarily and she's like well you know your letters right and he's like oh yeah i know them like my letters very well like i know my alphabet and everything and she's like well then you can read (laughs) it's like she's like the teacher who was really mean to you but they believed in you really hard and like pushed you it's a it's an interesting little dynamic in this scene 
okay, but her line about I taught some of the stupidest children God put on the face of this earth. I was like, oh, teachers everywhere. Like, yeah, I did. My mom's a teacher (laughs) and I wanted to text her so badly and be like, who's the stupidest kid you taught? But she did teach me at one point. So then I decided not to ask that question in case I didn't like the answer. I mean, I'm sure you weren't the stupidest, but also don't open yourself up for that like slam dunk because your mom would take it. You know my mom would have said that. Like, you know... You know, if I opened her up for that zinger, she would have taken it. Oh, Um, God. I also like when she uh, said, doesn't she say, it might be here or somewhere later where she says she taught uh, Mayor Hartsfield. Oh, yeah. Again, aggressive. So aggressive. But Uh, I loved it. (laughs) That's who the Atlanta airport's named after. Yes, one of them. But the we, we roll pretty quickly into, again, more time progression and into Christmas of 1953, which I love the Bully's house. Florine is a raging asshole. Florine desperately needs uh, acceptance. Coconut. And yeah, and they won't survive without the coconut. I do love when Bully tells um, their housekeeper, he's like, don't worry, it's not quite the end of the world, kind of in a reference to Florine's just massive overreaction to running out of coconut and coconut guys coconut is not even the most important part of a christmas party yeah but how is she going to serve ambrosia to these 50 people maggie the appearance the appearance though i do think it's ironic because on the ride over you have daisy super criticizing florine and talking about florine behind her back even though Daisy is absolutely paranoid about people doing that to her. And I kind of wanted to be like, Daisy, don't you see how you might be like perpetuating something and like probably driving your daughter-in-law to these more like extreme and manic displays for need of acceptance by the fact that like you clearly don't accept her and very clearly to her face don't accept her. I mean, Florine's terrible. I'm just saying that Daisy's also definitely like being super hypocritical and i hear Ian has something to say i can see him wiggling i hear and accept and agree with everything that you're saying but the amount of shade was so <laughs> satisfying you just love it because you're a shady bitch i am but like the fact that she makes this offhand comment about how she can't keep her help but it's quote none of her affair like it's just little things like that that are just i mean amazing. accurate though amazing we do have the not christmas present christmas present that she gives hoke i'm so Uh, mixed on this i am too i really am too it's it's a perfect embodiment of the saying which i love that the road to hell is paved with good intentions agreed because it's it's like um i forget what they're called but it's like something to help practice like reading and writing Mm mm-hmm a, not a primer and it, yeah like a workbook maybe, maybe a primer maybe that's what they were called but it's it's something like that while i appreciate that daisy has taken the time it's like it's like a christmas present but it's also work that she gave him i i you know you know why i think it's a little weird because in the graveyard he does kind of thank her for kind of that that little bit because she does the well, if you know your letters, like, let's figure out what the first letter of this name is and let's figure out the last letter. And then, like, you don't need to worry about the middle. Like, that's enough. You, you figure this out. That's enough to go find it. And then he, like, thanks her for that. But I don't think he ever, like, explicitly asks her to teach him. Yeah, it's a big presumption. So it feels a little bit like she's just decided to teach him. 
it doesn't feel like his choice. And so it yeah. feels like if it feels it feels like a little bit of an underhanded Christmas present. I'm sorry, not Christmas present. She's very adamant about that. Oh, her reaction to there being a Santa Claus and reindeer lit on the front yard of Florine's. Yeah, like, I feel uh, like I feel like Daisy hasn't quite she hasn't quite embraced Christmas as a purely secular holiday. Oh, not at all. Which I feel at least it's that's how the majority of the people I know celebrate it. So the next big sequence is them going to her, Daisy's brother's 90th birthday in Mobile, Alabama. Okay, I thought this road trip was going to be like the rest of the movie. I did too, but it was not. But it was also it like... It was absolutely not. Well-paced, hit the right notes, even though they were unsatisfying. I hated the end of it. The end of it sucked, but Oh no, I loved the, the end, end of it, because the end of it for me was when Hoke was like, I'm no fool, pay me, oh, bitch. Oh, I considered the end of it being <laughs> when you see them in Mobile at the party. Oh, see, I'm extending it to Hoke being like actually very shrewd and- Well, in that case, yeah. it's satisfying, but I consider that a separate scene. But that is a scene That's that we fair. will talk about, because I loved that scene. But yeah, so we get uh, him arriving at Daisy's, she's- Insisting, have we already had him, she gets the new car and he buys the old car? Yes, that scene happened. It was a little bit throwaway for me, but I did appreciate It's kind of throwaway, but I like that he's like, yeah, I don't want to owe your mom a monthly car payment. Well, and it's like functioning to show the progression of time and also the fact that, yeah, Hoke is making his own way, being self-sufficient, which like has a power to it, given the fact that it is... That the film felt it needed to show us that. Yeah, like it's a yeah. little. Like, I, I do think it, it does show a, a little bit more of like an element to Bully and Hoax relationship, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Maybe that's kind of a function of that scene, but it establishes this pattern of when Bully gets Daisy a new car, Hoax will buy the old car from the dealer that they sell it to. And so you show this progression of time by like seeing a different colored car in Daisy's garage. So you start with like the burgundy Hudson, then you get the black Hudson. I think it's another Hudson. Oh, the black Cadillac. And then the white, I don't know what it was. Pretty sure it was a Cadillac too. They, okay. They they have their American taste. Like their caddies. But then so like there's a scene later where like you see the white car in the garage and then you see Hoke drive up the black Cadillac. So like kind of this idea that like that pattern has continued and it's progressing time. I just liked kind of that visual representation. But anyway, Hoke arrives. Daisy is like, you're late. And he's like, I'm half an hour early. (laughs) Well, and I love that even when Bully comes over, he's like, oh, I thought you weren't leaving until quarter till eight. Like, again, the ridiculous like be- not behavior requirements, desires. I don't know what it is. Like what it's like Ian recommending times for brunch. Yeah, it's breakfast because if it's we before ten thirty. It's not breakfast or it's not brunch, Ian. It's breakfast. I'll be like, let's go to brunch, and he's like, meet at eight a.m. And I'm like, on a Saturday? No. Okay, I said ten. I'm 10. still asleep at eight a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> I let you have ten, but if it's before ten thirty, it's technically breakfast, not brunch. Brunch is a state of mind, not That's a time true. of day. It's a lifestyle. So you know what? <laughs> it's a state of being. It's a vibe. I will use your saying against you. <laughs> How dare you? I know. I'm so mean. Um, <laughs> but this road- Stop road, bullying me. 
What? You bullied me like three episodes in a row. Well, maybe you should move your boxes out of the back of your video and then I wouldn't Fuck bully you. you about it. Fuck you. They're new boxes. <laughs> I moved in. Okay, but if they've been there for more than two weeks, they're no longer new. Um, <laughs> shit, Stay I'm sorry. Task, I'm on a roll. Ian. Stay on task. <laughs> um, so the road trip finally starts. The montages are beautiful. Maybe like one to two more than I needed, but they really do set this in like Georgia, Alabama, like very, if if you've ever driven through those parts of the country, like you can tell. Like I said, it looked so familiar. I was like, I'm having flashbacks to visiting my grandparents. Yeah. And it's like, there were, were fun moments where Hoke is like, this is the first time I've been outside of the state, which again, for me, which... I had a military father and family that lived far away. So like I'm used to traveling, but like the idea that somebody has not left a state is just mind blowing. Uh, And then he throws a little shade at Alabama because he looks around and he's like, so far I'm not impressed. (laughs) Yeah. Like doesn't look like much. And I can, I can enjoy that joke because I am half Alabama. Are you? (laughs) Yeah. My mom, my mom. Yeah. But you didn't grow up there. Okay, anyway, I'll stop bullying you now. Um, <laughs> stop bullying me! <laughs> the uh, scene with the cops put me on edge. And this is... Okay, so yes. here's the thing. I think they tried to show and somewhat equate the prejudice that Daisy felt having an overtly Jewish name to that of the oppression of African-American people in the South. And this is not me trying to minimize the fact that she has dealt with prejudice, but she wasn't going to get lynched for being Jewish. She wasn't Jewish. physically in danger. Yes, she was not physically in danger in that scene, whereas Hoke definitely was. Yeah. So didn't, like, I understand the narrative function did not appreciate the comparison. Yeah, I understand what they were trying to do. Execution was not there. Yeah. If you couple it with a later scene... I guess you could say they're drawing better parallels. Yeah, specifically the the temple bombing scene. Specifically when the temple gets bombed. But they're kind of far apart in the structure of the movie. Also, Daisy doesn't make the connection. And that's the part that I think really gets me. Had this been like a tee-up, which I feel really horrible like putting it in those terms, like... But yeah, even in that later scene, like I, I do think we should talk about that, like in as a, a like a sister scene to this, where they're on their way to the temple later in the film, and they're stopped, and it's because somebody has bombed the temple, and apparently, I was reading that the Atlanta temple was actually bombed in '58. Okay, so in the, more in the movie, it happens, it happens like at a different year, um, but that that was like a thing that happened. So Hoke does try to kind of relate to this attack on one's self by telling a story about lynching. And I just. Her, her reaction to that is like, why are you telling me this? Like, why would you tell me that? And it's like, Daisy, he's so obviously trying to like relate to you and comfort you. And like empathize like yeah and like because that happens after like some stuff we'll cover for the rest of the road trip like it just 
that felt like such a devolution of their relationship. Like it felt like we had been on this trajectory of like her understanding more and like her being kinder and more empathetic. And then like, and like, obviously like she's scared understandably, but like also Mm -hmm. it completely undid like a bunch of character development. Yeah. So it, I think this is what we mean when we're like the writing is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the 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 larger structure, but so the the rest of the road trip is pretty like standard road trip um until we get to a scene right after the filling station and Hoke's like I got to pee. Yeah. Which I relate to. It's night, the sound design was great/I'm slash I'm sure that was just the nature bug sounds that were happening because <laughs> they clearly filmed this on location. I was just, sorry, those those sounds, and then you could see the stars in the sky, that also reminded me of my grandparents' farm. It's so great. But but this was the kind of monologue from Morgan Freeman that we've referenced earlier, where he is essentially demanding to be seen as a person. Like, I'm not just the back of a neck you look at when I'm driving you around. Like I loved that line. That was so good. Oh, So, like, this one piece, so great. And he's just like, I am... I'm not here to to like put my toadying actions on you. Like I'm a person. Treat he me as such. tells her no, which is something that she has needed to hear a lot more in at least this part of her life. And I I love uh, Freeman's delivery too because it is it is very firm and insistent, but he he's still I, I don't want to say like it's not like soft. Um, it's understated, but in the like best way he's, it's almost like he, something finally clicked. And I think he said it really well when he's like, I'm an adult. I know when my bladder is full. (laughs) It's almost like, I feel like at times she has talked to him as if she is an adult chastising a child. And in this scene, the way he talks to her kind of flips the dynamic, although he's a lot more respectful but it is it is kind of a reversal of like a parent chastising a child and being like you can't talk that way like which good cuz her actions have been very childish and i mean she immediately is like kind of scared about the fact she's alone which i she's scared of everything daisy's terrified of fucking everything yeah you're she's right she's terrified of change she's terrified of other people just she's terrified of people both not like her and like her she's terrified of change, which I might've already said, but she's doubly terrified of it. It's fine. So it, they do get there eventually and that's fine. Oh, this was where the My Fair Lady came in. Apparently, uh, Florine called away for tickets to fucking My Fair Lady. And Just that's why they, why they wouldn't go. Okay. Now go. I'm super jealous. They got to see Julie Andrews on Broadway, but. Oh, and Ian and your favorite Rex Harrison. Okay. I would be like, who is this toad? But they do get back and we do get the the delightful scene of Hoke getting what he's worth. Because he's, he's basically like, hey, they tried to hire me away. Your aunt tried to hire me for more, like name your wage. I love, I love that he's like, yeah, like 
who would do that trying to hire me out from under you? And Bully's like, yeah, who would do that? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, even telling me to name my own wage. How ridiculous. Okay. And Bully's like, hang on. Dan Aykroyd's like, way he played this was actually really great because the shift... Aykroyd's performance is good. His accent's just terrible. <laughs> fair, fair. But he does get his $75 a week, which actually, I'm curious. Well, I, I love, what is it? Uh, one of them floats, I think, $65 a week. Maybe it's Bully floats $65 a week. And then uh, Hoke is like, yeah, but 75 is even better. Oh, so smooth. And Bully agrees to it. And then I love, oh, there's a line that I think I wrote down. You ever have folks fight over you? Feels mighty good. Yeah, it, it, it does. Ooh, it does. <laughs> so n- next set of scenes, I think, again, it's supposed... Well, uh, I really struggle with this because I feel like they used Idella's death in the next scene as a way to try and advance, like... They they used it to try and make Daisy seem more empathetic. Yeah. And it does not work. Also, that's such a disservice to Idella's character. Yes. Who, again... I Idella I viewed as kind of a gussied up version of the mammy like trope that we have seen in films from earlier. Like she had some really great zingers, but like really reduced her to some zingers and some snaps. She has no life outside of her work that we are shown or implied to have, so Another very underserved character. Mm-hmm. And then her death is literally used to like have them meaning Bully and Florine and Daisy, like the only people in the church who are white at this funeral. And I'm kind of like, you have made comments on the fact that Idella has been with you since Bully was in eighth grade. Like, this is... Mm. I, I think mm. they also wanted to show Daisy's been so resistant to like Lorene being involved in like Christmas and stuff and has been like, but she's not involved in anything in the temple. So I think it was supposed they were trying to like show like Daisy kind of being more open minded on multiple fronts with that scene. But it, it feels icky. Yeah, it's again just. I'm not trying to say that every single character needs to be like a fully formed like we get to see their inner thoughts sort of thing, but I in this especially with the way that the kind of matriarch type African-American characters have been portrayed in film in the past. Just not, I'm, I'm not having it again. We're, we're relying on a outdated stereotype that never should have existed. Yeah. So should we talk about a winter in Atlanta? Ian, did you have snowpocalypse flashbacks? I had snowpocalypse flashbacks. I say snowpocalypse fondly because it was, I think, was it my 21st birthday, I think, when Snowpocalypse happened? Yeah, we got a lot of wine. And I I called you and Emma, and I was like, I'm coming to stay with you guys while campus, we were still in college, I was like, I'm coming to stay with you while campus shuts down, and you can't say no because it's my birthday. I mean, I think we had planned to do it. And then I went to the liquor store. Again, the lies we tell ourselves. (laughs) I I will say, I thought that was like totally overblown, but... 
But when Hoke shows up and Daisy reacts like she does, absolutely agree with that. And his comment about how people are running into each other like they're on the funny pages, like, oh, so true. Yes, so, so true. So true. Um, but he uh, he can drive on the ice because he used to drive the milk truck. Mm-hmm. It's just like these fun little little things. Like they they do attempt to like build a character, even if it's very surface level. And yeah. I mean, I think there's no doubt that the film is written from Daisy's point of view, basically. For sure. Um, we have a uh, bully coming over, like freaking out, thinking that she's going to be freaking out. And then she's like, well, or he calls, I think, and is like, I'll yeah. be over there as soon as I can. She's like, well, Hoke's here. So like, I don't, I don't need you. Everything's fine. He's like, who are you? And what have Wrong you done with my number. mother? <laughs> I mean, I get it. And that, that I think, again, was another opportunity for a turning point that just, it, it didn't continue the push because yeah. we roll pretty much right into that scene that we mentioned earlier where like maybe I'm expecting too much of this. I just, we've had, we've had all of these hints at turning points that just don't pan out. And again, yeah. it's a movie. It's not real life. I want mm-hmm. it to be narratively satisfying. Yeah. But th- then we get the whole progression with um, MLK coming to give a, talk like a speech at a dinner uh is this before or after he brings her Krispy Kreme it is after so Krispy Kreme is during the winter but it was only the coffee not the donuts there were no donuts I just got really excited and I was like oh, I wonder if it's the one on pause that burned down twice probably not <laughs> that's too far away <laughs> so the next couple sets of scenes I think really hammer home that extremely unsatisfying like progression of these characters now i will say i think they are portraying some of the like reality for folks in the south and this is not me trying to like excuse as they hammer home the inaction of like white people but it's very clear in this scene that Bully is concerned with maintaining his family's business over pretty much all else. And like even just the appearance of him going to this dinner is something that it's interesting that he says this because I think this is kind of a modern take on it where it's like, okay, this is not going to be an overt like because you went to this, we are not talking to you, but it's going to be the little things like you're no longer getting the lead. You're not getting invited to this lunch. Like, it's the little inaction that is so insidious. And and also like the small slights that can make a difference. Uh, because I think Bully also addresses in this section that like as people who are Jewish in the South, especially at that time, like it's a small community and there is still prejudice there. Oh, for sure. And so that like he already in some ways is an outsider. And, you know, I I definitely don't think that makes his decision right in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But it, you know, it is interesting having a character kind of discuss those aspects of society. Um, I did think, so I, I was wondering if like that part of the scene, like if Daisy was then going to lecture him on like caring what other people think. And I was like, I hope he calls her a hypocrite or maybe she realized that she was a hypocrite, but uh, that didn't happen. Instead, I think it it's partially done, you know, not only to highlight some of those issues, but also to open the space for him to be like, take Hoke. 
And this, I, I j- the scene when they're driving to the dinner, Daisy brings it up and Hoke misreads it as her trying to invite him. I also wasn't 100% sure because Bully has told her to invite him. And then she's like, she, I wasn't sure if it was her wanting to invite him, but not wanting to say she wanted to invite him. So she was framing it as like, Bully told me you wanted to come. And then I, I took that as like him kind of seeing through her bullshit and then her chickening out. But it also, I think, could have just been like, both characters completely misreading each other. Right. But in either case, I'm like, where has this relationship gone? Where have we come to other than a like surface level, friendly, small talky sort of thing? Because anytime you delve into like complicated topics, things shut down. Well, I wasn't sure because this coupled with something Bully says on the phone in the winter section, I wasn't sure if they were trying to start moving in a romantic relationship direction. Oh, I never got that. <laughs> I don't, I, I just wasn't sure in that moment, but then I, because like their relationship had been like, I was like, you guys were on better terms. And then now you're acting real awkward around each other. And then coupled with bullies line, I was like, is this what they're trying to go for? But they, that's definitely not what they're trying to go for. I just, I don't know if they knew what they were trying to go for in a couple of these scenes. Yeah. I viewed it as them opening an op- opening up an opportunity for Daisy to like empathize with another person, like think about what other people might want. Cause the fact that she presumes that he- Hoke doesn't want to see MLK speak in person is like of all of the her massive presumptions, like the this fact is the biggest. That she presumes that he knows MLK, or, or doesn't. Oh, no, oh, you mean like says, personally? Yeah, like all black people know him. all black people. Like, come on. Yeah, she a hundred percent does that, and Hoke's like, uh, no. And the then audacity she of all of this, like, I uh. the caucasity <laughs> of that moment. Oh my god! Uh, I, god. But then, and then she's like, oh, I assume you wouldn't want to go see him at this fancy dinner thing because, like, you can see him whenever. And you know the thing that really chaps my ass? She she looks at an empty seat and looks sad about it. Own up to this. <sighs> she do- Yeah, she doesn't invite him in. Instead, said we have a shot of her with a freaking empty seat and then her looking at the empty seat with maybe regret. But I don't know. I feel like saying she regrets it is too kind to her, considering everything that then happens after this and has come before. And then we cut to Hoke sitting in the car, listening to the exact same speech on the radio. It's Again, it's the appearances with this woman. That, that scene, oh God, oh, there are, are several very frustrating scenes in this movie. That set of scenes, I think, was the most frustrating to me. And I think that's the moment I realized we weren't going to get a satisfying character arc for her. Like, I, I, I think I, that's the moment I realized that I, I don't think sh- this person's truly going to change because of where we were in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then she's still pulling shit like that. Yeah. So we cut to Hoke pulling up in the black Cadillac or blue. And there's new car in the garage and this is where I legitimately thought that she had died. I did too. But instead, 
we see Daisy having a break from reality where she is talking very frantically about the papers that she needs to get so she can return them to her students. She does still know who Hoke is, though. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts were on this. This felt... Like a non sequitur. And also very sudden, because I got the impression that Hoke hadn't seen this before. Like, this wasn't something that had happened before. And it seemed, like, really extreme. And I, I have had grandparents who have dealt with dementia, and... There were like signs early on, like you kind of knew it was happening. It was a much more like gradual process. So to feel like she like sudden, almost like had this like sudden onset of it. And that, that may be something that happens and I just am not familiar with it or have experience with it, but like it, it felt sensational. Yeah. I I'd agree. And I, I mean, I, I second that, like I, my grandfather is not diagnosed, but pretty sure he has a form of dementia, and it is very much a downhill, not a cliff, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it did it did feel out of place and honestly led to one of my most disliked lines in the entire film about how she's like, Hoke, you're my best friend. I do love he does not, does not reciprocate. I just, it, and... and it was built up like visually. And if I'm remembering correctly, there was like some soundtrack here. I will say with the soundtrack, they do not overuse it. And it comes in at what I viewed as the right point. So I think. Yeah, great. Great judicious use of the soundtrack there. But I. It, it felt like it was set up to be this big defining moment of her character. Like, look at how she's changed. But also she hasn't. Yeah, and I, I I, still, every time we talk about that, I'm like, are we meant to see her change? Or is this supposed to be some kumbaya story about how even though people don't change, you can still find like the goodness in other people? But I'm like, I don't see a lot of redeeming qualities in Daisy in the context of this film. So it, anyway. I, there, I don't think there's anything she's done that I was like truly sympathetic about because it's it always feels like it's either just for show or that like she she's taking the wrong lesson from it or taking no lesson from it is the other like thing i ian sometimes no lessons the wrong lesson somebody put that on a mug <laughs> so i loved the transition into the for sale sold sign on the house like again editing coming in strong but really the the biggest there's some like interaction between Bully and Hoke here that just like hammers home the part, like the passage of time. Very stagey, but I'm okay with it in the wider it was context. Fine. I love that it's a Hoke's granddaughter now driving him. And she's at Spellman, which is also an Atlanta. As a professor. <laughs> yeah. Those Coke bottles on his glasses, though, like, whoa. <laughs> I don't I'm curious if you could actually see in those because they were a lot. Uh, they go to visit her in a very swanky uh, retirement home. I will say, too, when she was having the like um, break from reality and hoax, like kind of threatening her with like the state institution. I kind of oh, be that like, was stressing somebody out is not the way to make this better. <laughs> That was a little much. I did make a note that it felt out of character for Hoke too. Yeah. But also maybe that's like a good sign of Hoke finally being like, fuck it. 
employment or not, I'm going to like tell you. Or just not knowing how to handle that situation. Which, why would you? I wouldn't know how to handle that. So it's th- their interaction in the nursing home hit all the right buttons for me, but the wider premise kind of spoiled it, even though I was crying. Like, I I have, I, I don't think I've had time to like fully understand why I felt the way that I did at the end of this movie. So that, we'll just leave that aside. But like the way that they rehashed some of their conversation about how much is he paying you? Oh, that's highway robbery. Like it's, yeah. it's of the hoke came to see me, not you. Yeah. It's Daisy. Go still charm got, the nurses. Oh, <laughs> she's still got the sayings and like the, yeah. the biting, uh, like comments, but it just, uh, I don't know. I really didn't like the effect where they had the double exposure on the car at the end though. Didn't need it. Didn't want it. I also hated him like feeding her the pie at the end. It was a little weird, but also kind of caring and like kind of a reversal it, of that I relationship. Was, I think it was meant to be, well, I think it was meant to be caring, but it still felt very subservient. Like he worked for her. Yeah. It, it continued that. Also, I, I just, my last note was I would have liked to feel as if Hoke got something out of this relationship as well. <laughs> Cause like to a certain extent, I was like, other than just like, being nice and feeling bad for this old lady who like doesn't really have close friends other than apparently you would you be going to visit her yeah and that's a testament to hoax like compassionate nature like but it's still not i i struggle to find an arc with him and that is really sad given that he's billed like as the main character in many ways. I mean, I think I think Daisy's a, like absolutely build the main character, but I mean, like Freeman is nominated for best actor, not best supporting. Like exactly. they they had opportunity with his character and like especially when you have such a great actor in the part too and like I said, I think the moments for Hoke that really shined are a couple of those like monologue deliveries and of course like he does an amazing amazing job with those. It's it's sad when you see talented actors not given that much to do or or given a very one note character yeah so anyway i this is one of those movies where i i might actually watch it again because it is in her despite the overall premise like i did find moments of like entertainment and like i said for some reason it touched some emotional chord for me so I think the emotional chord for me was the nostalgia for Atlanta and since I'm not there anymore. That's fair. I think for me, it's more the the fact that she had a mental break, like really struck home because to get real, real for a minute, like I would Alzheimer's dementia, that sort of thing, like losing my mind is my greatest fear, like more than death. So <laughs> gotcha. I've decided I will embrace it. Dementia or death? Why not both, man? <laughs> the order matters, um, Maggie. The order matters. <laughs> definitely, definitely in the order you said them. <laughs> definitely in the order you said them. Ho- hopefully, neither for a really long time. But no, I mean, if we're getting real for a little second, like I, you know, I said the nostalgia note for me. Like my grandfather, leading up to this recording, has been very sick, uh, and so kind of like that little road trip piece to mobile. Like it reminded me of going to visit my grandparents when I was a kid. So definitely hit some nostalgia chords for me, which is really funny because I don't think this, this movie's not like 
set up as like a nostalgic movie. No, I think all of my feelings are me projecting like personal shit onto the the movie itself. So Absolutely. I mean, I guess that is another function of movies though, right? Yeah. So anyway, lists. Let's rank. So mine is surprisingly high um, at number 36. Like surprisingly high. But then I was like looking at some of these films at the bottom and I'm like, I can't, I can't put it below this. <laughs> yeah. So this actually bumps Rain Man down a spot, which I find actually oddly appropriate because you, I, I think a lot of our issue with the character of Daisy mirrors our issue with Tom Cruise's character in Rain Man. So the the thing that's saving this for me, well, I mean, uh, I, I don't think it's really saved. I think it's just like a little bit better is that I actually did feel something with this film. <laughs> and, whether, whether it was that you felt something because of what the film was trying to make you feel. Yeah. That's, that's a different question. <laughs> and I mean, we, we did talk about, a whole bunch of the like representation and stereotype issues with both films. So honestly, I see them as kind of similar in a lot of ways, which wasn't really expecting both of that. Hans Zimmer scores. Uh, yeah. One of which maybe that's why it's one ahead. of which is better. <laughs> it has the better Zimmer score for sure. But really, I mean, at this point and to, to spoil it, like I know that we're going to be reordering this soon, but like this feels like the right portion of the list to put it in for me. That does put it after The Godfather, which, I mean... I have hot takes. I mean, I know you have hot takes on Godfather. You can listen to our episodes. Uh, But it's... There was at least more visual interest in The Godfather and, like, an arc. Like, a small one. It's, like, more than I saw here. Now... I am, as I'm talking through this, thinking like maybe I need to give Driving Miss Daisy a little more credit for making me actually agonize over thinking about it. Because like I, I think there is some intrinsic value in making one like reflect on things. For sure. So, hey, maybe I will come to a different thought later. But um, And they did try to address some very difficult issues in this movie, even if the execution wasn't always you know, what you would have hoped um, because there have been some movies that have not even tried. Yeah. So that's uh, my unsatisfying answer for an unsatisfying movie. So. Okay. Well, you just helped me make my decision. Um, This is also surprisingly high for me. I'm going to put it at number 36. Holy shit. (laughs) This is the first time we've agreed in like age since, since like uh, the fifth episode. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to put it number 36. That puts it right above West Side Story. Uh, West Side Story, obviously visually compelling, but like, I just, I I think I enjoyed Driving Miss Daisy a little bit more. And I um, think the adaptation was better. I I would agree to a certain extent. I, I guess like, even if it's not always executed well, they are trying to tell a slightly more nuanced story than just uh, Romeo and Juliet rehash but not to say the west side story like isn't good like it's oh it's entertaining dance fighting like how is that not entertaining (laughs) (laughs) i love a good dance fight love it but then that would put it right under life of emile zola which is definitely like a flawed movie but one that i really really enjoy and that is a movie that also deals with discrimination but i think 
does so in a more effective manner. Uh, it also just has like some amazing like dialogues and monologues and stuff as well. However, as Ian alluded to, uh, since this is our last movie of the 80s, we're actually going to our next episode. Oof, I'm going to say most likely there is a chance anniversary could come before it. But the plan is for our next episode to actually be a list reordering episode to give us both the chance to kind of like go back through and rethink some of these movies that we may have revisited since then or, you know, looking back on our list if we're like, now that I've had some time to sit with something. Or our past selves just are jerks and made current (laughs) orders like really difficult. (laughs) And I'm never a jerk, not even to my future self. That is a bald-faced lie, and you know it. <laughs> I think I complained to you today about something that passed me did. So yeah, I'm actually very excited for that. Um, can correct. That should be piece. a good a good episode. Definitely follow us on social media. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both Instagram and Twitter because before we record that list reordering episode, I will definitely be posting and pulling uh, listener questions. So keep an eye out for those posts and definitely remember to submit any questions about the movies or the podcasts that you guys might have for us. Yeah, and thanks for listening. Join us next time for, uh, as Maggie said, one of two episodes, which one we will not know right now. Also, rate, subscribe, review. Oh, yeah, that. Sorry. On, a, on the that. final note. <laughs> on our final, final note. Version two, I mean it this time. <laughs> I'm 100% leaving my like little thing at the end there. <laughs> <laughs>